Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. This episode continues our series on sex and spirituality. We explore the impact of an emotion-first, will, mind, and body second paradigm on this topic. This leads us to subjects that include how will drives codependence, the spirituality of lust, the innate self-worth of the soul, and much more. I remind you, as always, to please listen to this podcast from the beginning and in order. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome forward, as always, and uh, thank you to Stace Barron, who is here with me again for the 19th episode. We're almost out of the teens of the Heart of Soul podcast, and as promised, we're going to do a part two on sex and spirituality. Where should we begin? Well, maybe um, in in, uh, the foundation that informs um, all of the domains of the human condition that identity addresses, uh, the fact that that identity offers that we're emotive beings first. Uh, the human consciousness is uh, emotive first, um, willful second, mentalized third, and physicalized fourth. And it turns out that the willful and the physical um, uh, uh, in in humanity's consciousness have been made far more primary uh, um, uh, in in the modern day, along with, of course, mental also, I think, therefore I am from Descartes. That's what's really amazing to me, Joseph. Um, We've been 400, so a little between four and 500 years now since Rene uh, posted that uh, that position. Cogito ergo sum. (laughs) Yes, cogito ergo sum. And that we operate uh, so much by default that that's the way it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and without recognizing, we, we've already closed the chapter on I think, therefore I am. And we're in a new chapter. We feel, therefore we are. And there's very little meta curiosity uh, to uh, realize that. And so philosophers, um, humanists, religionists, everyone operates through um i think therefore i am <clears throat> to a large degree by default without yeah, I, questioning I, yeah i find that fascinating as well it's sort of like at any given moment even just you just choose something like western medicine it's like <laughs> in any given moment there's an assumption we've got everything figured out and then six months passes and they realize that's not the true not not the truth and then they reset it's like oh but now oh but now but now but now we have it all figured out and, you know, there's a revolution in philosophy at least every couple of hundred years. And, oh, no, but now, but now. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. it's the, the, the hubris of, uh, of um, the part of being human, I guess, is um, that we were somehow able to forget uh, how clueless we were in the last moment and double down on this moment. And I know of yeah. no other way to, rem- to arrive at humility. I think of it, I'm getting to a place in my own life where I'm starting to... <coughs> bring with me the failures and mistakes so that they're more in the now rather than in some illusory past, you know? Um, Absolutely. And that seems to be really important because, uh, you know, whatever the most brilliant cutting edge truths are of today, uh, in a couple of years, they're going to look stupid somehow. 
<laughs> That's always but, been the case. Yes. Uh, in, in that sense, uh, Joseph, um, if I may use a rather um, a banal term, an Edenist, uh, uh-huh. uh, someone who is, a, is um, uh, exploring identity, uh, it feels like they're in a time warp because they're actually, they almost, they almost oftentimes I've felt like I've come from the future. Mm-hmm. And and I'm stuck in the past while the rest of humanity double downs, uh, double down doubles down doubles down yeah doubles down on their um, their willful first uh, orientation whether they're tracking it or not their mental based uh, um, priority whether they're tracking it or not or their physical and uh, to come forward and say emotivity is our prime aspect of human consciousness form and expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, uh, you're so far, we're so far, um, beyond, uh, being stuck in old, um, uh, formats that, uh, we feel like, um, we're visitors from the future trying to help the past get going. I'd feel more like a visitor from the future if I embodied it a whole lot better. I think sure. certainly my mind sure. sometimes feels like it's from the sure. future while the, no. the rest of me is struggling to actually live it because that's very difficult. Yeah, that that in the end, um, that's the ex- most extreme expression of your wonderful ability to take the um, possible into its application every day. Embodiment is the key. Uh, we can theorize till the cows come home, but where the rubber meets the road, as we say so often, is when um, <clears throat> we actually have an experience of the knowledge, mm-hmm. not not just guided by knowledge anymore. That we have an experience. And then to that degree, we don't have to overattach to it anymore. <clears throat> we right. only overattach to theoretics when we've not learned how to embody what we theorize about. Hmm. Another way of looking at things. And maybe so this anyway, is a rabbit hole to go down, but I, I find I'm learning a whole lot from women about that. Mm-hmm. Because women seem to have a, um, a more inherent embodiment mandate in them. They're, they're wholer because of that additional yin and they can't compartmentalize or don't compartmentalize as much as men do. So the self-importance, uh, the, what I call, or men, did I get this term from you? Did you use the term embodiment gap years and years ago? Or did, yeah. Long time, long time yeah. ago. The embodiment gap it seems to be more for men than women, which is, it seems to be one of the causes of conflict between men and women. I know, did you have in mind the men, women, the whole, all that kind of stuff for this series? Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's all part of it. But you speak to um, a, a, an applicable um, a rabbit hole here, because uh, as it has been staring us in the face for the last oh, 80,000 years or so, <clears throat> uh, both men and women come out of women. Mm-hmm. So which is the more primarily emoto spiritual gen- gender representative and that's that's the yin the yin in both men and women but women as we'll get to in this series this th- three-parter that women uh, uh, who are in alignment with their uh, their physical based gender uh, which is another whole rabbit hole set of rabbit holes um, are two-thirds uh, comprised of yin and one third comprised of yang, and men are two thirds comprised of yang and one third of yin. And instead of there's never been a battle of the sexes, there's only been the struggle between how yin in both men and women processes reality relative to how yang 
both in men and women processes mm -hmm. reality. If we could learn what that means, and we're going to go into that quite a lot uh, in this sec uh, today a bit and next time, uh, all the all the gender wars, quote unquote, or, or the wars between which pronoun applies to my <laughs> orientation this week uh, goes on. Um, all that would be solved immediately, mm. uh, or at least would stop warring with each other. So let's, when we think of it, if we're a mode of beings first, if, if identity is right that way, then um, the willfulness wedded to the physicalness that is involved in sexuality um, is going to take center stage in sexualized uh, relationships because it's the will that wants to act on desire from the physical, uh, if we just look at it that way. And since we, we are not an emotive-oriented, love-based world, we're an energy-based, willful world, um, largely the, the idea, like we talked last time or the time before about how, how completely critical it is to see that uh, there's a seamlessness between divinity's nature and our human nature, a seamlessness. And if God is made of love, then so are we. And if so are we, then why don't we experience that? Because we're not, we've never been taught that we're emotive beings before we're willful beings. So by default, the second most uh, important uh, aspect to human consciousness is will. And uh, that has taken over you, now in this era, will, before it was, will to serve the body's needs to survive. Now it's will serves the mind's need to try to strive to thrive. Uh, whoa, and so, to, whoa, say that one more time. That was really good. Sure. Um, in, in the dark, dark ages, um, will was used uh, in bloody religious wars, for example, to survive, not only survive physically, but survive the religion, right? Mm -hmm. So the religion survives. Um, and so uh, what, what happened, what was in the dark ages, um, the will served physical based survival, but now in the modern age, will serves the mind. I think therefore I am. Uh, and and oh, then translate. will serving the body, which, which you didn't mention, I don't think just now you didn't, but me, I don't know if you did before, but that was entirely necessary for the survival of the species, a will yes. first to serve the survival of the bodies and the, therefore the human race that was entirely necessary and then it became a kind of uh, what we'd call a truth and service right that yes. it became mm -hmm. a will to serve the mind's survival to try to approximate thrival which yes. it actually can't which it's dead ending it, it, it absolutely cannot and that's why everyone's scratching their heads without even knowing they're scratching their heads on what direction to take now See? yeah like i would hearing like all of the stuff around uh reverses wade um being undone I, I followed some of it kind of deeply because i was curious about it and it, like, it turns out that the argument made for it was pretty bad to start with you know the constitutional yes. justification it was. It, it was bad and so then they reversed it with another really <laughs> bad argument <laughs> and so it's sort of like yes. they pitted one bad or one poor not critical thinking argument for the best supposedly you know law people in the land it was some really poor reasoning Yes. that passed it and very poor reasoning that undid it. And it's just like, I want to step back and be like, obviously using words and mind and will to try to sort all this out isn't working. 
No. What, no. what do you do? Like there, because you know, and like the, the the don't say gay law in Florida <laughs> has some reasonable points in it, but it's so badly written. If you actually look at the document, it's ter- you can't enforce it in a sane way. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. I, if you compare um, so much of the professional, educated at least uh, orientation of a hundred years ago, we were far more eloquent, eloquent. Um, uh, um, rigorous, articulate, yeah. rigorous um, holding ourselves to the, the razor's edge and the way we, th- why we thought what we thought. Yeah. There was more integrity. Um, uh, and, and we have lost that with yeah, too many. I heard, yeah, I was listening to a podcast uh, uh, yesterday. Um, I can't remember what it was. I think it was a, a bill being um, uh, worked on in, in New York State. I forget what it was about. <laughs> But the, the governor in question actually admitted that the bill was not constitutional. Yes. And I like, saw. you know about this. Yeah, yeah it was I like, the, the, the bill is not constitutional, but, you know, we're going to work on it. Like, record scratch. Like, what? How can yes. you be supporting a bill that's not constitutional? You're supposed to sort that out before pushing it along, you know? We, we've, um, the science of semantics has replaced the <laughs> philosophy of epigenics. Um, it's a uh, it, it, that's another whole rabbit hole here, Joseph. Yeah. Uh, identity, which finds itself centrist left, in if you could compare that uh, uh, in the particularly silly way we've all been polarizing, yeah. and not so silly reasons why um, that uh, uh, when we look at this whole topic, for example, abortion, I was astonished as an Edenist. Uh, that so many of the abortion laws that uh, that that um, have been on the books as okay allowed abortions after twelve weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I was astounded. Yeah, so I didn't was, know that either until recently. So was Bree. Yeah. And so the protestation about sixteen week um, uh, um, abortions that have been allowed in a lot of states, sixteen and more, eighteen. Uh, these are ridiculous. There is a being there different than the first 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. So um, I, an, Eden, an Edenist like myself uh, sees why the red states are um, uh, driven by Christian ethics, of course, um, uh, have a point. Uh, but to abolish it altogether is a mistake in the other extreme. Yeah, yeah. So They're both wrong. Every, it's every, everyone's wrong and everyone's partially right. Yeah. But more, more wrong on both sides than they're both partially right. Uh, yeah, and if, if they were wrong, that. but used critical thinking at least to make the points that they're trying to make, it would be a whole lot easier. But that was how we started down this rabbit hole of yeah, just exactly. what I mean. What I see where I can relax a little bit into the meta of it is like, oh, uh, thinking alone will, which is an aspect of will, is being dead ended. Okay. Yes. That's why the rigor of critical thinking is being departed from yes. because the subjective feelings are getting infused into it. And it's like, well, this is what I believe and it doesn't have to make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, um, at least you're honoring your subjective feelings. We wouldn't call those core emotions, but maybe no. that's a necessary first step. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Um, if someone says, I feel um, that God wants me to... Um, uh, uh, Allah makes, uh, tells me to kill the infidel, I'm going to follow that feeling and not have any critical thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it would seem like a we feel, therefore we are paradigm would support that. 
Oh God. But it, but it is completely the other side of the universe. Um, just like two people on an equator, uh, maybe back to back, but if they go forward, if they look, they look in their own direction, back to back front, uh, they are 25,000 miles apart, even though they're back to back. Mm. So this whole ori orientation um, of, of will first, will's use of mind to try to strive cannot apply to intimacy. It is absolutely the wrong um, uh, um, um, operative for the domain. And yet, so this is why it's so important that emotivity first is the argument that identity makes is the only key to unlock this morass uh, that has so many repercussions in so many different domains. And this is because relationality is yin, emotion is yin. So the governing dynamic is going to be love, not will. And when we try to navigate intimate relationships with will, it's like taking the governing dynamic of cutting a tree down with a chainsaw and applying it to intimate relationality. Great metaphor, great metaphor. How much sexuality in this moment, no matter the category, uh, is, is starting, is, is occurring as a secondary expression of love as opposed to a secondary expression of will. Ah. How, how many in this moment? There are virtually identity would offer 90, upwards of 90% of all sexual encounters are will-based, not love-based. Um, sure. and, and that's the problem that um, we've had as a species since we started um, inhabiting the uh, quadrupod uh, uh, version of uh, animality in our bodies. So let's mean parse bipedal, that. Walking on two legs. Uh, yeah, four limbs is what I meant. Oh, okay. Uh, quadrupod, not walking on four. Yeah, that's okay, right. Okay, just have it. But, okay. <laughs> that's right. So um, let's see if we can stay in our present rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll try right here. Um, uh, the best way to frame it is I'd like to par parse. Um, what happened, uh, how, parse how desire, sexual desire fits in with identity's picture of how, what things, how, what, how it diagnoses things. Yeah. Um, identity would offer that um, in a soul-based domain, which we are before we incarnate at any one time, uh, and which also applies to the human domain when we learn to embody emotivity or love first, is that there, there is an innate self-worth to our soul. Our soul I, who travels in direct linkage to divinity in between lifetimes, many times as they recover from any current incarnation, the soul I has to remember or be or reorient and recalibrate that, that, um, their self, that they have this innate self-worth supported by divinity every quote-unquote celestial quote-unquote moment mm -hmm. so um, there's an innate self-worth to the soul eye that learns otherwise when it incarnates here that's the the essence is the soul eye has innate self-worth when the when the soul eye is operative here joseph that innate self-worth slowly becomes healed into self-worth in the local personality Right, and that that when you have innate self worth, 
coming into the local eye, there is the parentheses is I deserve, I have earned, I am worth the objects of my desires to seek the object of my desires. Mm -hmm. Desire is cleansed of its wound-based utility when the soul eye learns to finally emerge through the local eye. And so the essence is an innate, innate um, self-worth in the soul eye. The form is uh, uh, in, in the local when you heal is an innate self-worth in the local eye, the, the, the personal eye. And that innate self-worth in the personal eye gives us um, a, a, an existential okayness to want the objects of our desires. And that's the, then, then, then will can engage. When ah. will is not engaged by an emotively mature I segment in us, will will always steer us in the direction the unconscious wounds determine by default. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. So if you're not emotively mature, and since psychology is, and philosophy is not based on emotion, uh, emotivity first, uh, not discrete emotions, emotivity first, um, the will is going to have a, um, a preponderance of choice mechanisms that will manifest uh, dead ends. What, and, you know, it was just, mm -hmm. I had so many thoughts in my head in the last 10 seconds. First one was, um, was uh, oh, our defense systems use will to protect us and so, therefore, our desire is going, you know, we become will-based because of that, and our desire is going to come from will. Why is it that our defense systems can't use love? There's love essentially there, but... It's, it's uh, uh, the, the heart of love never got enough food. Oh, right, because we, we don't have that bands. as a local personality to start now. No, no, no parents are emotively mature before they have babies. They're none, none. But we have the will to survive that's built into the biology of us. Exactly right. Uh. So, so kids get a feeling that the parents care about them, and that's fine, and protect them and feed them and help school them, and the best of parents I'm speaking to now. But even in those ideal situations, what the society would call ideal situations, uh, uh, child-rearing um, uh the, the child has not gotten the adequate food of love, even though the parents love as best they know how, because the parent would have to have already moved their consciousness to emotive first to be able to impart to children an example of what it is to live emotive first. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that's why there's not enough love to drive um, a nine, over 90% of human beings on the planet. And those that are driven by love have largely done so by villainizing the I as original sin or villainizing the I as an illusion. So the vast majority of people who do energize, who do activate every, their will with love, do so from their own set of existential wounds. Mm. So we are, there's to be qualified <laughs> to ignite every moment with the fire of, um, of love. Uh, you would have to be emotively mature. That is having gone through this whole rigorous thing of look, of exploring your unconscious. Yeah. 
Another so, piece related to what you just said, just uh, to compare and contrast, uh, you're saying that desire is not the cause of suffering, which is one of Buddhism's main tenets. Correct. Um, that there's such a thing as healthy desire, soul-based, and unhealthy desire, which is a distinction that Buddhism didn't make, um, not being particularly interested in parsing out aspects of the ego, so it seems. <laughs> uh, unable, a little too early. <laughs> unable, yeah, that's because that's what psychology does. Right? They <laughs> right. just saw it as an inhibition and want to get rid of it. Exactly right. So you, uh, desire does not cause suffering. Not getting the objects of our desire <laughs> causes suffering. Not getting the objects of our healthy desire. <laughs> of our healthy desire. There's still desire. such a thing as unhealthy desire. Right? Oh, yeah. But a lot of people suffer over the lack of an unhealthy fulfillment of desire. Uh, a man who dreams about having a harem of women uh, <laughs> uh, is suffering if he doesn't have his harem of women. Um, mm -hmm. That is a completely wound-based um, patriarchal um, piece of um, Schweinescheisse, as Brie says. Uh, um, so uh, this whole idea that desire causes suffering, so let's get rid of the I that, or ego that has desire and we won't suffer anymore, is a central tenet of Eastern and many Western orientations. So the reason I bring all this semi-meta um, uh, uh, con con context stuff is because on until we find a way to heal our local eye, not transcend it, not call it an illusion, not vilify, vilify it with original sin, only those such people are at the beginning of a path to learn to how to uh, begin with love cleanly uh, uh, and activate will. And then from there, use a relative use of mind and a relative use of body to go after what we desire. Mm -hmm. So in the absence, we could say, uh, since the, the default situation of humanity is a mode of immaturity, the default state of relationality is codependence. Uh, everyone's codependent. Every relationship is codependent. How does that connect to a will-first orientation toward relationship? Can it can connect will-based will relationship to codependence? Sure. When there's inadequate, healthy love activating will, Will will by default be activating from unhealthy um, basis, oh, suffering, uh -huh. lack, uh -huh. right? And that lack will overgrab or undergrab to the object of your attention, locked in codependence, like 50 year monogamy for most people is locked in codependence or polyamory on the Wait, other you side. mean we shouldn't celebrate and applaud when we find out that two people have been together since they were 18? <laughs> well, certainly one might um, say, boy, they must have made a lot of compromises <laughs> uh, and, and say good that. Good for them, right? Yeah. Yes, good for them. Uh, when, I mean, you do see some really sweet people who've been married for 50 years and they adore each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's clearly seen, but it's not it's not because they've delved into their unconsciousness and cleaned out all their stuff and wound up uh, creating a, an active soulmate expression mm. of their uh, their bond. They just got tired. Um, mm. They the like so many therapists say to women patri uh, pseudo patriarchally. Well, are you better off with him or better off without him? Oh man! Uh, and I, I've had that run into that so many times over this the uh, the uh, decades when I've worked with couples. 
that they report what the former therapist said to them, you know, um, well, are you better off with him or never without him? Most 50 year marriages aren't, aren't alive with active love. They're um, sort of numb down to a Peter principle of getting along. Yeah. And, and that's okay. That's, that's where those well, souls that's, are. That fits with that paradigm, you know, if they're, because yeah. they, they right. collapse uh, emotional health and functionality into the same thing. So are you exactly. more functional and better off with the person? Right. Not what is your deepest soul truth? They're not asking that yeah. question. No, and no one ever helped them to. So there's no criticism here. Mm. It's just that that's a venue of younger souls. Uh, mm -hmm. Younger souls will tend to um, overgrasp codependently, locked in codependency to give them assurance that love will be there in the next moment or the next day or the next year. Uh, monogamy has gotten a, a, bad, uh, a bad rap for good reason in some ways, because it's one of the most virulent form of locked in codependence. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, polyamory or in an extreme hedonism uh, point of view is, is a case of locked out codependence where the wounds that have never been healed over grab for love or um, in polyamory or um, hedonism that way sexually, uh, what you've got going is a situation where the wound-based will is used to privatize the benefit and collectivize the risk. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, polyamory is an insurance policy that you've got someone to have sex with or someone to care about you or you to care about them or give sex to them. It's an insurance policy for people who are terrified of what real intimacy is, which monogamy is not a good example of, and polyamory is the other side of the universe. Wait, why is monogamy not a good example of? Some forms of monogamy are, right? Um, uh, standard monogamy, as 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 we see in uh, every generation until um, uh, till now, most monogamy is um, based in fear. Okay. Not, codependent not monogamy, then. Codependent yeah. monogamy. Sorry. Okay. And and but codependent mo monogamy, it, there's just this exact same uh, degree of virulent. Virulence, virulence, virulence. <laughs> yeah, virulence uh, to uh, um, non non patterns, who sell themselves as the enlightened way to look at things, and uh, uh, and it's just um, by codependent, we, we are beat by default codependent until we become emotively mature. Well, then I just want to highlight that's a unique feature of identity right there, <clears throat> that all relationships are codependent until um, healed up, healed to otherwise. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and it holds that um, all, all you have to do is tune your heart and your mind together in a certain bandwidth, and it becomes clearly evident. Um, you will always find uh, um, codependent majority, more than 50% codependent. Uh, it's never 100 zero yeah. on either side, but the majority is by default codependent because we've never had a paradigm that says um, we're emotive first. And so that changes the, the, the rubric uh, for everything, the standards and the benchmarks for what it means to be non-codependent. Uh, because the relationship, if it's will-based, then the relationship becomes a vehicle for the will, which inevitably is the governing dynamic of how the wounds are being handled. So it becomes a, a sort of vehicle for the wounded will. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. A non-codependent relationship 
by percentages, again, <laughs> less codependence than non-codependence, or le- yeah, less codependence than non-codependence, starts out, um, it, it moves from being will first to love first, because the person, uh, one, one side of the bond uh, relationship is um, coming from love more than will because they've done their inner work and the other one also, let's say. Uh, so now we, when they come to the interface, such people, um, uh, well, for example, when I, when I um, look at Brie and I, f- I can't help but notice her physical beauty, it's impossible uh, to me. Um, but when I first look at, at Brie and that moment has gotten longer and longer and longer, the more I work I've done, uh, I, I, my heart opens first. My heart opens toward the being in front of me. And as a man with some happily accepted lustiness to uh, my being, um, uh, and I don't villainize that, vilify uh, uh, my lust, um, secondarily kicks in, my lust will kick in in the physical uh, in response to my heart opening up. And, and that's mediated by second and fourth chakras, as we say so often in identity. Uh, non-codependent relationality is when four and two are in harmony, not, not exclusively split by wounds in three. Mm-hmm. We say that again. Um, uh, uh, four is the center of our local front, the front side of us anyway, the front four is on, uh, that we're coming from love every moment. We feel that before we do anything with our will. We feel that first. Uh, a person comes to my door, pounding on the door. Um, if my heart is open in that moment, um, I've got room to consider that person may be in trouble and maybe needs help. If I start with uh, my heart closed, what's this, what's this asshole doing on my door? You see, it changes micro to macro every way we respond to the world. So this idea to come from love first, it's easy to say. But when, they, when a couple does that, using my example to complete that, um, my lust comes up after my heart opens because two go, uh, follows my four as the way it's, it should in experience. In experience. Um, even sometimes my two will lead, but I can't operate, act on that with Brie unless I, I find the love for it uh, second. It, it can go back and forth. It's not, it doesn't have to be in that order. But two and four, when they're connectable, um, when they when they harmonize, because what the self, the chi, the self, the power of self that's in three is no longer wounded. While that's wounded, it's going to separate two and four, and the uh, the love and the body urges and our desire, the lust, um, are going to create codependent um, patterns. Hmm. So lust. Um, you can even look at and the animal kingdom. There, it's every the scientist looking through a mind filter. Say, well, it's just instinct. Uh, you, if you can go a little further into animal consciousness, there is lust involved uh, in sex. Why would that be an exception for us? Mm. Uh, why would, we're all part of a seamless? Uh, our humanity is uh, got animality, animality as part of its uh, inheritance. Why, why would lust be so uh, horrific? Well, because uh, early uh, religions made it so. Mm. They just made it so. Not, not unreasonably when if you, had, if you didn't make uh, um, uh, strict, put, put strictures on behavior, um, you have Babylonia. 
you know, um, and uh, and so there was a reasonable reason to put all that in. But in the end, um, when you animate a soul eye based intimacy with sexuality, it's not doesn't reduce itself to tantra. It automat. You don't have to do any exercises or breathing or visualizing or energizing or going slow or There's going. There's no technique. Back. There's no technique. Tantra is all about teaching younger souls how to sort of get ready for the the, the adult game uh, involved in learning to become come from love first in all domains, including sexuality. So that's how sex and sexu- sexuality, the headline we can we can work with here, Joseph, mm-hmm. is that there is no difference between sexual sexual um, uh, uh, um, essence, form, and expression than there it, than it is in spirituality. Because remember that the three things that identity is based on, one, we're emotive beings before we're mm-hmm. willful, and, um, um, mental, and physical. The second is we're, we're responsible for the contents of our unconscious. And the third is that the I is spiritual in itself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be learned or transformed to become spiritual. It is innately spiritual. And that position has never been allowed in, in, um, in any spiritual point of view to any degree that, that has changed the world or helped the world. Identity simply says everybody's got to do, be where they are and express what they feel until it dead ends, no criticism. And um, everyone's dead ending and have no meta paradigm to realize their dead ending. I think one, one distinction that comes to mind that I think might be useful here is... Um... I just had a client I was talking to earlier today who was uh, telling me that he was into uh, Joseph Goldstein, uh, who's oh. one of the spirit rock guys, or at least spoke there. But that's sort of, I see that as there's sort of a genre of spirituality, the spirit rock in California, Northern California. Uh, Andrew Cohen, uh, Jack Cornfield, those sure. kind of, there's sort of a bandwidth yeah. of those guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't remember much about him, so I went to his website, and the first thing I saw was I, one of my goals is to uh, spread this teaching to as many people as possible. And I was like, that doesn't sound like something a Zen master would say. <laughs> you know, that was the first thing I saw. And then is that Jack said? Did Jack say that? No, no. Uh, Joseph Goldstein said that. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. All right. uh, and then I went a little further because I'm just trying to familiarize with my, myself with it. And then some stuff about loving kindness meditation and some other stuff, and it's like. Uh, one of his books was about, uh, can I remember, um, The Practice of Freedom. Oh, God. Right? And yeah. so there's this, it seems subtle, but it's not at all. It's That's state chasing. That's cultivation of states. Yes. It's Buddhism, and they're calling it Buddhism. But yeah. <laughs> people don't make a distinction between Buddhism and Zen. And Zen would say, why do you have to practice freedom? You're already yeah. free. Why don't you experience that? Exactly. And I think the average person doesn't get how giant a chasm there is between uh, between those uh, two different ways of looking at it. You know, um, and now I forget what we were talking about that it applies to um, <laughs> <laughs> either because I'm still recovering from COVID or because I'm so far down the enlightenment path that I can't remember a thought from a minute ago. Can you help me connect that to what we were talking about? Well, in, ge- in general terms, um, we were on the topic of a, a spirit, the headline of a spiritual being. Oh, now I remember. Experience. Yes, yes, thank you. So when people, it, it's like, if are you having to remind yourself and intend to be a spiritual being having a human experience, or is that your default mode? 
that just happens without intention? That would be my question for the person. Because mm-hmm. if you're having to do that mm-hmm. and make an active intention about it, um, well, then you must be a human being striving to have the experience of being a spiritual being, having a human experience. Well said. Which really is different well. than actually being it. Yes. And this is where embodiment, we come back around again to embodiment. Uh, not, none of those um, headlines uh, touch the real ground of a love-based version of a spiritual being having human uh, um, secondary human experience. But, but with the will-based milieu that most everybody is living in, then yes. having to intend to have that frame, or like Andrew Cohen, I think, used to talk about like the vigilance of maintaining an awakened state or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he, yes, like, right. You know, from the, I, I guess, more love-based perspective, although it seems, I don't know, more yin-based perspective, it's sort of like, you have to strive to maintain it. Like, what? there are many days I wish it would go away. Yeah. <laughs> or some part of me, more accurately, would. You, you haven't enlightened fully if it keeps bothering you, a uh, pull back to localized over-attachments and over-identifications. Yeah, it's like, well, no, the, no we, one, the, the rocket has to strive to escape the atmosphere. Well, you haven't escaped the atmosphere yet, obviously. Exactly, or else you wouldn't still need to strive to be vigilant. But from so a will-based perspective, that makes perfect sense. That's what's so interesting about it. It's like, oh, well, of course, yeah, you got to keep striving. you got to keep maintaining. That makes sense inside the will-based perspective. That's the point Is that's so important uh, to highlight here. There's a sequela right there, a tragic sequela mm-hmm. of a will-based orientation that, that these good men and women don't realize how much will-based rubber meets the road occurs in their embodiment while they're prattling on about love first uh-huh. or love being the important thing or the spiritual, the implication in a spiritual being having a local uh, human experience is that, that, we're all, we're, that we should be coming from love. Um, right, not wrong, but, but they're not living that and don't know they're not living it yeah. and don't have the critical thinking about their own belief system to realize that the strival to create a state proves that you're not there in being that state. You can't will your way to love first, no. which is what people are doing, because they intuit on some soul level sure. that love needs love conquers all, all you need is love, all of that. It's there in the collective unconscious, yes. but they're trapped trying to use their will to get there, which is like looking for a flashlight so you can find the flashlight. It's, it's snake eating its own tail or something. Exactly. Uh, in that case, when you're using will uh, to make all those goals happen, um, you're dead ending and don't even know you're dead ending. Mm. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the hardest part uh, as an Edenist, um, as the first Edenist, let's say, um, uh, to watch really advanced consciousness people not have the meta to question even their enlightened state uh, um, uh, 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 bandwidths of teaching. So, I, if you, I, since my event over thirty years ago, I've never had to be vigilant. Um, I ha- I've had to work my way back to dualism to have any some sort of uh, yeah, connection. That's the vigilance. Yeah, if anything. that's the vigilance. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. So, uh, w- when you're striving to using will to maintain a state, you have not embodied the state yet. That's another oh, way. That's a really nice it. distinction. Okay. See? You're using will to embody the state. You're not embodying the state. 
including enlightened people, mm -hmm. right? including uh, what people don't get is in what you just said a moment ago, you can't will your way to love first. They're trying to add love to a will-based world embodiment, and it will forever fail because it's not an addition rubric. It's a subtraction rubric. You have to deconstruct your way, deconstruct your uh, emotional wounds that drive will first uh, to ever, ever expose what's already in there in all of us, which is a love first orientation. And, right. you know, it, to be fair to the paradigms of the world, uh, you know, I think of Ajashanti, who said uh, in uh, Enlightenment is a destructive process and wrote a book called The End of Your World, starkly yes. contrast from the Jack Cornfields and Joseph Goldsteins who are doing constructive work. Ajashanti is doing a deconstructive work. We'd have some issues yeah. with how and, and why and sure. in particular. No, he's got the right... He, yeah. He's one of the few that has the right headline, and he's striving as best he can, even though he's exhausted, uh, dear man, at the moment. Um, uh, uh, he's striving heartily to swim against the current of modernization uh, or and culturalization of what enlightenment really means in the West. In, in the West, yeah, uh, has has and you know. Maybe right. you can shed some light on what is the deal with the word mindfulness? Where did that come from? And why is it associated with Zen? It's crazy making to me. I say this in, th th I think, three out of my eight books uh, somewhere, that it's supposed to be mindlessness. <laughs> First of all, mindfulness. Right. Right? Why would you want to be full of mind? That contradicts uh, a whole lot of the other teachings. But it's a, well, then second, it's like, okay, well, it's about being very attentive. And, yeah. um, well, okay, so you have to work to be attentive. Well, who's the one who's having to work to be attentive would yes. be my question. Sure. Because that's, so you want the ego to become more attentive. Well, that, I thought that was the problem. I thought was the, that was the obfuscation of pure awareness. So you're just going to use your will to polish the ego to become more attentive. Well, where's that going to go? Exactly, Joseph. If the answer is so you can witness its failure, then I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. But that's not the way they frame <laughs> no. it. That's exactly oh, it's so astute that you say it that way. Because when you, when you engage will to drive mindful awareness or mindfulness is a combination of what I've heard. Of as oh, mind, that's good. Mind, mindful awareness, yeah. Mind, mindful aware, mind awareness. Mm -hmm. You're watching the you're watching your own mind, how it processes reality moment to moment. Um, that's, that's fine. That's a basic core principle of, of effective meditation, to, which is, of course, I think we've said before, mm -hmm. meditation, the whole point of meditation is to seek the meditator and find that the meditator can't be found. Yeah. Anything other than that is westernization, um, in the same way that yoga has become a, a, a shopping mall, a form of, of spirituality in so many cases in the West, same principle as it applies to this enculturation of um, working on the eye. You, you, you actually muscularize the eye as an, an inevitable downside in meditative mindfulness. You're temporarily muscularizing the eye so as you said so beautifully it will be undermined later mm -hmm. that's fine but how often do you hear that secondary prepositional phrase uh, <laughs> right. in, in the teaching not very not very often even if they feel they they hold that they don't teach that mm 
so effectively as much as they should. So when I help people, I'm working with one person right now. She, this person contracted with me. All right, whatever, whatever form of enlightenment and sage or saint, um, I can have this life. Um, I want you to help me maximize it. So we're, we're striving. Yeah, we're striving by deconstructing, uh, not destructing, as Adya says. It's uh-huh. de- deconstructing. It's a slight difference. Destruction is not the oh, same yeah. deconstruction. Yeah, like See? deconstructing, it's like you disassemble a house carefully so you can reuse the materials, not just right. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. With a new blueprint for yeah. the house, right? Mm-hmm. And, new, and new materials. Mm-hmm. So what does this all have to do with sexuality? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we just went down a rabbit hole and it's okay that we did, um, but let's try to uh, steer the back onto the main road of, of sexuality. Um, because sexuality, when, when you talk about sex and spirituality, most of the time you hear, you've got headlines of Tantra, sure. or you have headlines of um, a man not allowing self, himself to ejaculate. Sure, uh, that's an immediate association. Uh, uh, I, I knew so many people uh, who, um, uh, just like going from meat eating to vegetable eating as your mainstay of diet, go to non-ejaculation because ejaculation is a human thing and we're trying to transcend the human and not get distracted and how sexuality is not only the enemy in Western dark age religion, it's also been the enemy, uh, um, a a, a life of lust against uh, enlightenment in the Eastern traditions. Mm -hmm. So sexuality has gotten the worst branding in (laughs) spiritual teaching it is the war. It, it, it has become the 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 whipping dog and the straw man for all forms of new age and old age and Eastern and Western religions to, to a great degree. Uh, and we've tried. We have to do something to deconstruct that conditioning because even if you don't know you've been conditioned to that, the planetary uh, zeitgeist of that conditioning goes into every human being uh, to some degree. So by default, we have to take another route and deconstruct what our belief systems are. First, we have how many people really know what their belief systems are? Uh, not, not that many as we might presume. So when it comes to sexuality, it's been the straw dog, the whipping dog of um, uh, a straw man and a whipping dog. And it's time to stop, to stop. It's time, enough. Identity says enough. Everything unifies Sexuality becomes part of our humanity and our soulfulness when you start your will with love first embodied. Of course, the repression of sexuality is what's created a multi-billion dollar porn industry. You bet. So the it's not like those that desire clearly can't go anywhere, whether it's in a priest or the Zen master who abuses his students or wherever. Porn, porn legitimates the split between two and four. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes advantage that, of the fact that we don't know how to do love, to start with love and any intimate, uh, uh, use the body as a tool to express mm-hmm. our love physically, uh, our love and our attraction. Identity wants you, unlike what Osho used to teach, wants you to hold out for someone that opens your heart and turns you on into second chakra hold out for that and then question 
well, I can only be with 90 pound women with D cup, D cups uh, <laughs> for a guy, um, or I can only be with a man with a square jaw and makes a lot of money for women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the sex in the city kind of uh, orientation to life uh, in the, in the cultural shallowness of things. So we've got to deconstruct our way to this whole state, but there's no innate, no innate, innate non-spirituality to sex. None. And yet that is how it has been branded all these uh, millennia. God, divine being made us with a second and a fourth, and fourth is more primary than two. And that makes sex not the least important thing in the world, but certainly not the most important thing in the world. Love is the most important thing. And we can learn by healing in the third chakra, self-power issues. Um, to have the two be able to find their peace with each other, which happens um, most uh, possibly in a soulmate uh, situation, but not exclusive. Should we talk about soulmates, the nature of soulmates? That's an interesting topic in this uh, Sure. Um, I think we've talked, did we talk last time or a couple of podcasts ago about how all of us uh, prior to birth, um, we uh, over our incarnational cycle, um, the, and I like this parsing, Incar-natives, incarnatives. Um, we're natives of incarnation. In, Earth, Earth is an, an incarnative uh, um, uh, um, experience. And um, all that time uh, that we've been doing that, uh, uh, human, human beings uh, have, have in them a memory of in-between incarnations buried somewhere. And over all these incarnations, we've accumulated anywhere from two dozen to three dozen souls who would qualify for quote unquote soulmate. The ones that we've traveled over and over again as mothers, one life, and lovers, another life, and fathers, and brothers, and sisters, and aunts, and bosses, and confidants, and uh, leaders, et cetera, et cetera. We've all amassed a, a, about two to three dozen, most people I've seen when I look in their soul field. And uh, any one of those uh, would qualify as, whoa, what is it about that person? An immediate, silent, what is that? Um, You're frozen in it for a moment um, because there's something about that person you can't explain that draws you to them. That's likely one of your your soul family mates. In that two to three dozen um, array, there are one to five most intense connections of, re- of, of resonance between the souls. And those are what we really mean in identity by a soulmate relationship. Uh, of one or two or three souls, let's say, we'll say three, who would represent, would know you so well and mirror your gifts and your liabilities uh, so well, they, they constitute a soulmate. Let me repeat that. A soulmate <laughs> does not come to you as the fulfillment of all your dreams about a soulmate. You mean you don't live happily ever after and everything's fun and nice and you have sex 10 times a day and yeah. Well, um, I love that thought. Believe me, I can't say I wasn't guilty of that myself. But at the ripe old age of 70 and still active in both love and sexual domains, um, uh, I can say that uh, um, however we approach it, the, the impulse to have to want a soulmate 
has to, un- has to understand, and this is not well articulated, that a soulmate, here's the definition of a soulmate, someone who mirrors your assets and strengths of character and being equally and equally illuminates your deficiencies in your character, uh-huh. moon-based. A soulmate has equal for both, and that is why meeting a true soulmate, which so many people wish for, your your ideal here has to be um, a crash against the waves of reality or the rocks of reality. A soulmate, uh, a true soulmate bond is the most exquisite union possible between two uh, consciousnesses and the most difficult we, what do we call it uh, most often, Joseph? A soulmate bond is a train wreck. A train wreck in heaven. Yes. In heaven right? Well, it just was occurred to me like any uh, intimate relationship tends to bring out uh, some of the best and worst qualities of us. Of right. us, a soulmate relationship brings out all of the best all, and worst of, qualities. Yes, no, that's a really beautiful way to say it. We, we're drawn uh, um, into romance. Uh, by our invisible wounds and our invisible strengths. Uh, um, uh, Just more of them, all of them, all of them, as you say, come through with a real soulmate. And that is what makes it so challenging to unhook because most soulmates uh, situations, uh, mine uh, with with Brie, and I know you're with a soulmate uh, and and you both would say that too. Uh, um, All, all of them get uh, illuminated and much to the chagrin of our protections and our defenses, right? So it is a train wreck made in heaven. Um, Soulmates, uh, you set it up ahead of time to have one or not most of the time. Uh, And along those lines for soulmates, we can make a distinction too, Joseph. Um, Soulmates, by the way, soulmates include, you can have a soulmate friend, Mm -hmm. but but we're talking about all in all, uh, all of the strengths and all of the liabilities are with, partners that have a, in an intimate involved sexuality because when two when you're you're opened here to some degree by recognizing this other person as someone you know or feels like you know until you ground until it it moves through two and includes the vagaries and and by vicissitudes of, of second chakra um, you're not going to get close enough uh, to expose the roots of your strengths and the roots of your liabilities, lesser um, friendship-based soulmates, uh, parent soulmates to their children are all going to uh, uh, illuminate a lesser version of that because there's it's not a peer in the case yeah. of, you know, all that. It has to be peer and it has to be sexual um, for it for it to do the most most uh, job on on our protections. And, and like you alluded to before, that it's the tough part about it is that we have so much conditioning about what's supposed to happen when we meet the person we love there's the sense of like they're going to be the answer to all of our problems when at least part of the experience is that they're going to feel like the cause of all of your problems (laughs) so that you are forced to work out how you're contributing to those problems Uh, and they're going to have the same experience of course that's the train wreck made in heaven thing Absolutely. And let's, let's recast it just slightly here and we'll come at it from another door, is that you see so often in codependent um, relationships that one person will say, she's my rock. 
Oh God, she's my rock. Oh, no. uh, so, I, and as, as I've worked with people over the years, I always use the kite uh, tied to the rock. Yeah, right? one he grounds one person, me. That's the yeah, other. He yeah, he grounds me, or she takes me places I never knew where to go to. Right, yeah. not just sexually. And then um, my my other half. They're my my, my other half. They're my other half. This is halfway toward full soul soulmateism. Codependence is split like that. They've got the liability, to, or they've got the asset to offset your limits. Yeah. Uh, when I meet opposites met, attract, opposites attract, all that stuff, all of that only involves halfway toward the, the potential of human beings to actually mate soulfully because there's the cut, the cut, I have to find the rock in me and the kite in me. I can't, I don't have, Brie is not my rock and she is not my kite and vice versa. Um, in some moments, my skill set can, can help her realize what's missing in her skill set. And her skill set can certainly illuminate what I'm missing in mine. Um, that like the, in this domain, um, not in this domain, in, the, in this in a domain where appears, um, not where there's a slant. Um, when you, if there's a skill set traded 50-50 over a period of time with two um, soulmates, um, you're not therapizing each other. You're co-creating uh, healing in each other in, in that dynamic. Mm -hmm. So, so sorry, uh, it's not split anymore. The the rock that you the, the the grounding you have to learn how to do if your mate is doing it for you, uh, and if you if it's the kite taking you to soaring consciousnesses or sexual highs as you've never felt before, whatever the domain, you've got to find that in yourself. That's wholeness. Mm -hmm. Psychology and philosophy has not helped us very well to create such a wholeness inside where spirit, body, mind, and, and uh, will all resonate peacefully with each other, which can only happen when love comes first. Mm -hmm. That requires the I has to heal to some degree to draw a true soulmate to us so that there's a in, in in at least in the most ideal sense so that we can deepen that track we're already on on self-wholeness so there's no self-wholeness if you um, want to vaporize your eye uh, there's no self-wholeness in that uh, in the paradigm of, of uh, Eastern transcendentalism there's no wholeness in that. You're exclusivating. You're exclusivating there. My I can't be part of my spiritual path. My ego can't be part. Oh, yes, it can. Only an unhealed I is obstructive to the spiritual path, not an emotively mature I or an emotively mature ego. Hmm. So we say so often, the I that drives our desires in, in soulmateism, sexual relationships, is not an illusion. The only illusion is that is that the uh, the teaching that the eye is an illusion? That's the illusion. It's uh, Buddhism in East in the East and the West with their own version of vilifying sex, uh, villainizing the ego, the uh, the unrepentant self, or the hedonist, are all based on the eye is not inherently spiritual. And so, until that changes, everything we're saying about sex and spirituality is just going to hit a very shallow Peter principle. What would you say to someone who says they want to meet a soulmate and they haven't yet? Um, I would say um, 
if you haven't made yourself this, you're a soulmate first, then the mate that you want uh, for yourself is going to be uh, an addiction of some sort. Mm. It's going to be a substitute for the you that has not holified, that is mated with themselves first. Mm -hmm. And that's an ideal that no one matches, not me, not you, not anyone at the moment can claim 100%. Sure. Um, but, but there is a huge difference between 60% and 20%. Yeah. <laughs> I saw something on, on Facebook recently where someone had posted a decent uh, decent con unconventional wisdom about male female relationships. And it was about, uh, you know, if, ever, if as a man, you haven't done X, Y, and Z for your woman, you're not going to get the best from, from them. And, <laughs> and it was actually not bad. Okay. Uh, uh, and you know, identity would have agreed with a fair amount of it. And then I just noticed someone commented, a woman commented under, under it and said, if you, if anybody knows a man like that in the Bay area, send them my way. Uh -huh. And I just hit me, you know, just like, notice that the, the assumption there is like that that woman has all of her shit together yes exactly therefore it's just a matter of getting introduced to the right person rather than if you haven't met a soulmate then there must be something on your side left to work which is what we would say exactly right whatever the person's paradigm of i've got my shit together no paradigm on the planet ever invented until now qualifies you to know how to do that because none of them are based on emotivity first. Uh, either the philosophy or the psychology of such a person that you mentioned that they've got their shit together and so has earned their soulmate. Um, uh, what's your paradigm? Your paradigm might be completely resonant with your soul age. Younger souls need have lesser requirements. So we always have to put that asterisk in everything we're saying. We're talking about older middle-aged souls and elder souls where identity is trying to serve not to judge any other philosophy or psychology uh, hedonism polyamory from a identity's point of view is it is is um uh, uh stuck in teenage um uh, uh emotional states and, and stages it's a you're fixated in a teenage state where you want your casual sex because you're either terrified or don't know how to get close to uh, another person in a way that when the heart and and when one and two or when four and two are talking with each other resonantly and you have sex slash make love with your partner and she has opened hers the same way in this he she thing at the moment um, there are places that 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 hedonism or polyamorism or casual sex will never touch, yeah. will never touch. And you can't articulate that to younger souls, nor should we try. Mm. We do where you are. If you're a polyamorous, stick with it. No one's shaming it. And one day in between lifetimes or one lifetime, you will see that, that, that intimate monogamy and commitment uh, 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 with a soul that matches you in some ways that illuminate both the liabilities and the assets. Um, that is going to be what we're all evolving to. And I can say that with no hubris that any other versions, LGBTQ or any, any variation, stick with where you are. All we would say, and we'll talk about um, the, um, the uh, reframing of male-female with yin-yang, 
which is key to the point of sexual sexuality and spirituality, and how um, uh, 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 that any LGBTQ situa uh, situation is just as rapidly codependent as any cisgender. Uh, there's some magical thinking going on here that, oh, if I just own my own true deepest sexual uh, gender or non-gender or pan-gender or mm. whatever the, the flavor of the moment term is, um, if only I, I, I find that, then I'm, then I'm in my real me. Uh, there is just as much rabid codependence in any LGBTQ uh, as there is in any uh, a monogamal, straight, uh, cisgender bond. Let's call bullshit on bullshit here. Uh, we're all codependent by default. And that's something that the superiorization of polyamorous believe, oh, I'm not stuck like these monogamous. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. You see? Or the LGBTQ is, look, I, I, I've got to show how much I have pride in myself. If you have to show that much exaggerated pride, you don't feel pride. Mm -hmm. And I say that with heartful respect. Those who have real pride don't need to plaster it, don't require pronouns uh, to suit their self-image. Stay with whatever LGBTQ thing you, you've got going and try to remember that, that you're coming from a, 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 a deep wound somewhere if you need to exaggerate the need to have pride that's okay. Exaggerated. Make the rainbow um, exaggeration. It's okay. It's not wrong. It's just not mature. Uh, the people who are, that I respect the most in any LGBTQ situation are those who are quietly living their lives mm -hmm. and not making, uh, not dressing in wigs and flamboyances, just doing their thing uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and quietly because that means they've got another whole level of assurance that they are where they're supposed to be. Mm. If you have to exaggerate in all these ways, monogamally on the other side too, the born again Christian monogamous, monogamous. Right, who are somehow threatened by other people <laughs> that oh they don't even God. know and are, don't oh. live near them and all that being gay, I and mean, that's a problem for them somehow. Uh, I've never quite understood that. Well, homo homophobia is almost always driven by repressed uh, homo homo erotic. Yeah, Man, well, that's uh, yeah, that genuine. part is clear. Yeah, and that, and that that there's so many people. Matt Getz comes to mind. Uh, that mm. congressman, uh, oh, or, or Josh Hawley, uh, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham. <laughs> and, and, he seems to be getting gayer every year. Oh, oh God, and that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but look, just because you're gay or any one of the LGBTQ um, uh, doesn't mean you're emotionally healthy any more than a monogamous is emotionally healthy, yeah. cisgender. So please know that everyone's on the same level here. And as we evolve, the more incarnations we have uh, under our belt, when you get to about the 300th lifetime here, 350, You've done all those things. You've done all the experimenting, and now you keep narrowing at the time. At the same moment, you're expanding your your incarnative possibilities. No, I can't. I've didn't done that. I've done that ten lifetimes in a row. What I don't know is how to do ba 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 ba. Yeah. So when we say anything but mon enlightenment, a monogamy, which is different than monogamy that's out there, anything other than that is privatizing the benefit and collectivizing the risk.
so you don't get heartbroken. You close some aspect of your heart when you, you can care like crazy with your three partners. But if it's one man and three women, I guarantee you the three women have wounds that uh, want to share a man. And if a man wants to share a woman, you're hiding from some terrible fear that you're going to be hurt horribly beyond uh, your ability to cope. So you privatize, you collectivize the risk. Now that's controversial. That's not for everybody. It's for elder souls who have learned through trial and error over 300 or more incarnations, what works and what doesn't work to holify, holify. And so no judgment on any stage and Grown-ups need different value systems than children and teenagers. That's it. Identity is a value system for older souls and doesn't claim to be superior just for a different demographic. Mm-hmm. And sexual spirituality has all these triggers for the offerings in identity. Mm-hmm. Oh. It seems like a good place to close. It does. three. It does. Uh, We'll concentrate more deeply on LGBTQ, what happens in those just as much as it does in cisgender, and the critical importance of reframing male and female into yin and yang. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about that, uh, how yin and yang dynamics play out in homosexual couples. Absolutely. That's how we, with reframing as yin and yang, decodes Yep. What's happening in all forms of sexualized relationship all across the spectrum, rainbow spectrum. Yeah. Uh, re- reframing it allows us to decode what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Joseph, well, thanks well. as always for your, um, your uh, we make the balance here between uh, my uh, expositions and your challenges and your, your, Rubber meets the roads and my lofties. Uh, and sometimes you come up with lo- wonderful lofties uh, ways of saying things and expressing things I've never thought of. So I love I love doing this again. I yeah. Thank you for this. You're so welcome. That's it's really a pleasure. Thank you, Stace. Thank you, listeners. Tune in next time, and uh, yeah, we wish you well in your journey. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey.